Please be seated. Let me invite you to open your Bibles to the book of 1 John. Those of you who have been with us know that we've been studying this letter from the beginning of the year, uh, looking to this to be encouraged in our faith. We are looking at this letter that John has written because in it he's instructing us in what it means to be authentically Christian. He's writing to a people who had forgotten, people like us. He's reaffirmed us with the foundations of our faith, all of which is rooted in Christ and the relationship that we have with God the Father. But He's also laid foundation of other important principles that we need to understand, showing that our faith, our relationship with God, also is with others and then demonstrates itself through practical love. Now as we look to uh, the passage before us today, John, in one sense, kind of shifts gears, at least for a moment, taking a lot of the principles that he has already laid out for us. He now begins to apply them to us, to our hearts, to our, to our lives, to the way that we live. And he is speaking to us in a very practical term. He becomes, as Christ does, a physician of our hearts. Before we go to our text this morning, we want to go to the Lord in prayer. Let's go to him now. Our Father, as we come and commit this time to the study of your word, we pray that you would open our eyes and our hearts, that we may not only see what it is that you would have for us to see and, and to, to be able to learn it. We pray that you would enable us to uh, receive and appropriate it and to apply it to wherever it is that we are in our own lives. Your word is not merely to inform us. It does form us. But it doesn't do it automatically. It comes by the power of your spirit and our yielding to him. So, Lord, may we yield to you now. Your word may take root and bring about the change, shaping us more and more to be like Christ. For we are in need yet you have provided the way. So bless us now as we consider your word that you've given us this morning. We pray this in the name of Christ, the word incarnated. Amen. Third John, begin our reading in verse 18. Hear the word of the Lord. Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. By this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before him. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart, and he knows everything. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God, and whatever we ask we receive from him, because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. And this is his commandment that we believe in the name of the Son, of his Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another, just as he commanded us. Whoever keeps his commandments abides in God, and God in him. And by this we know that he abides in us by the Spirit whom he has given us. May the Lord bless us and give us understanding of his holy word. It is a glorious thing 
to be free from guilt and fear of condemnation. I've experienced it. Several years ago, while we were living in Pittsburgh, researchers from Penn State had made a scientific breakthrough. It's recorded in Science Daily. Here's what the Science Daily reports. Researchers from Penn State University say evidence from 66 published studies support the view that consuming flavonoid-rich chocolate in moderation can be associated with reduced risk for cardiovascular disease. I read that. The heading of the article said that chocolate is beneficial for heart health. And so, of course, the first thing I did was go down to the 7-Eleven with a big Hershey bar because I figured there was no sense putting off good health. You've got to start right away, and pour yourself, commit it to it. It is a good thing to feel free from guilt and fear of condemnation. And in this passage, what the Apostle John shows us is that there is spiritual freedom, there is emotional freedom for those who understand the gospel and appropriate it for themselves. John here is speaking to really kind of two kinds of people, two kinds of believers one whose heart condemns them and one whose heart does not. And yet, the same message is given to both. We're beginning with the ones who are a little freer, the ones whose heart does not condemn them. We see that in verses 21 and 22. John writes this, Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And whatever we ask, we receive from him. In other words, John says the person whose heart does not condemn them, there's two things that go along with that, two things that coincide, uh, that one of which is if your heart is not condemning you, you have confidence before God, it's not difficult for you to approach God. You have a sense of your relationship with God, and so therefore you're approaching him. And then along with that is says that you receive whatever you are asking. Part of approaching God and relating to God is that you are, feel free to ask God for things in your life. Now, it's important that we look at this because sometimes this is an abused or a confused text. John is not saying here that this is a situation where as long as you feel good about yourself that you can go before God and then God will give you whatever you want simply because of your self-esteem. He's not even saying to those who have reason for self-esteem because you've been good. I mean, he does talk about that here in a moment as to the basis of the confidence that we have before God. He's not saying that we dictate to God. You go to God and say, all right, God, I've been good, so now cough it up. He's not saying that, Lord, I've, I've done all of these things that you've wanted me to do. I've done all of these good things, and so I've merited. I, my, my little merit book is filled up, so I should get something in response. John is simply describing the realistic condition for those who their hearts seem to be free from condemnation. They enjoy the fellowship that they have with God that John has been describing throughout this book, knowing that in Christ they've been forgiven, and they are enjoying that relationship with God, and knowing that in Christ, as John has been describing throughout this book, that in Christ they are children of God who are being shaped by the priorities of God. And as such, because they have God on their heart and they're relating to God, they tend to speak freely to God, just as children do to you. And so when your children are four, five, six, they just ask anything that comes to mind. They just ask and they ask and then they learn as to what their parents believe is appropriate and not appropriate and they begin to ask more and more in line with what is, is good for them. Well, 
this is what John is describing is true for the person whose heart does not condemn them. That they are, they are free. They, uh, they come before God. They have the confidence before God. They, they tend to be very effective in their prayer life because they are conversing with God on a regular basis, continually asking, and they're receiving much of what they're asking for. But John also tells us that there's a basis for that. In verse 22, he goes on, he says this, not only do we receive what we're asked, but there's a because, because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. Now, again, it's important that we realize that, we're, that John is not saying, see, if you do enough good stuff, then you put God into your debt. He's describing things in retrospect. He's looking back upon it and saying, look, the child of God who has, belongs to God, who is walking with God, who has understood how he has been loved by God, by Christ, who then has asked the question, how do I respond if such love has been given to me? Remembers of Jesus' instruction, what John reinforces in saying, Jesus says, if you love me, obey my commands. So John's describing the person who knows that they have been loved by God and wanting to respond to God in love, they have committed themselves to keeping God's commands. And therefore, they are walking in a way that is essentially good, not in order to gain God's favor, which they know they already have, but in order to bring pleasure to God. And that's what John is saying here is, see, in keeping the commands, this person is walking, and they are keeping God's commands, and, and that is bringing God's pleasure. It's not bringing favor. It's not bringing grace. It is bringing just simply pleasure. It's just the dynamic of a relationship of people who love one another. They enjoy one another. They live and give to one another. That's essentially what John is describing here. At the same time, for anybody who is paying attention, whether you are one whose heart seems like it's condemning you or you are one who seems, feels overall free from condemnation, the idea that it is in the keeping of his commands that is bringing God pleasure ought to cause at least most of us to pause for a moment and say, well, how many of the commands do I, what do I need to keep? What is it that I need to do that's going to bring God's pleasure? We're told that it's keeping God's commands that bring God's pleasure, which is what frees us from condemna- uh, feeling of condemnation. You know, for Israel, that was, and Jew- the Jewish people, that was an overwhelming question. See, they had gone through the word, and they had counted in all of God's word a total of 613 laws. 365 negatives, 365 times, don't do this. 248 times of, this is what you need to do. They looked at the 613 and, in essence, asked the same question that most of us would be asking us, you mean I'm supposed to keep 613 laws? That's what the law demands. If you violate the law at any one point, you've broken the entirety of the law. 613 laws. I wouldn't even be able to remember them, much less keep them. And so even if I kept them, it would probably be by accident. The psalmist came along in Psalm 15, realizing, perhaps feeling the same way that I would and many of the people were feeling, as he looked at that and his study of the law, his meditation upon the law, and he expressed the, law, the fullness of the law in, oh, 11 or 12 laws. Everything can be summed up in that number. So you went down from 613 to 12 and still fulfillment of the law. 
Well, then the prophet Micah came along, and he was looking at considering the law, and he was speaking to God's people, and he declares, God has already shown you, O man, what is good. And what is it the Lord requires of you? To act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly before your God. And so Micah summarizes the 613 laws into three. Apparently three was still troubling for some people, or at least trying to figure out what was the priority because the teachers of the law went to Jesus and said, Jesus, which is the most important law? And again, whether it's 613 or three, I want to know what's the pecking order. Jesus says the most important law is to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, your mind, and your strength. And Jesus threw in a second one along with it. He said, the second is like it, to love your neighbor as yourself. All of the law is fulfilled in these things. And so Jesus said 613 laws are brought down into two. Now, if two is too many for you, you're a little picky, but God is more gracious than your pickiness. Because the Apostle Paul in Galatians 5 tells us this. The law is summed up in one word. Galatians 5.14, Paul writes this, the entire law is summed up in a single command, love your neighbor as yourself. The entirety of the law can move from 613 to keeping of one law. And John is essentially saying that, although he's realizing, as Paul does, that the, the law is, even though the one command is, is more pregnant than we might, uh, might want to look at, might, might want to uh, be prone to think. But that's exactly what John is saying here in verse 22. We have whatever we, we, whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. And this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of the Son of Jesus Christ and love one another. It's an interesting note there because when John is talking about the fact that we, we bring pleasure to God by keeping his commandments, then when he says, and this is the commandment, he shifts from the plural whether it's 613 or however many, to the one command, but it's a two-sided coin. Here's the one command, essentially the same thing that Jesus was saying. It's the word of the Lord, the law of God is summed up with the one word, love. Believe in the Lord Jesus, which is essentially believe the love that God has had for you in what Christ has done for you. Love the people who are around you. This is the commandment that is to be kept. This is the commandment that is bringing God pleasure. And this is also the commandment that reassures our hearts. Because that's what John begins in, in verse 18. He's, he's finishing up a previous section, and he's reminding anybody with a summary and saying, look, children, don't word in, in love or talk, but in deed and truth. He's describing to us what love is. And then when he moves into this next section, he's referring to that statement to the fact that we love in practice, not just in theory, but in reality, that we love the people who are around us. And he's saying it's by this, it's by the fact that we love, it's by the fact that we love the people around us that we know that we are of the truth. And we reassure our heart before him. So if your heart begins to wonder, you begin to wander as to whether or not you're part of the truth, whether you're bringing God pleasure, the question is, do you love? The evidence of love in your life would reassure your heart that you are part of the truth. That's what John is saying. The love is inseparable from an authentic Christian life. 
This is helpful for a lot of people and for a lot of you here. You've experienced the love of Christ. You want to please Christ. You know that he's calling you to a way of life. The way that brings him pleasure is simply to act with the love that you have received to the people who are around you. If that's beginning to wane, then increase your action. You renew your heart that way. But John's talking to other people as well. He's talking to people who are not quite as certain. He's not only talking to people whose hearts do not condemn them, but he's also talking to people whose hearts do condemn them. We see this really in in verse 20. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart. It's interesting that John is saying whenever our hearts condemn us, so the fact that he's saying whenever seems to indicate that this is not an uncommon practice. It's not an uncommon thing for hearts to condemn, even those who are children of God, people who are walking with God, people who are loved by God, people who love God. Because John's using the word whenever. It's not like if ever this was to happen as as an exception. He's saying whenever. And he seems to be suggesting that there are some people, or maybe all people at some time, but there are some people who just feel their heart is condemning them. They never feel good enough. They're always frustrated. They always are thinking about the fact that they're just not the man or woman that they want to be. No matter what progress they've made, that they just keep on slipping up, struggling with the same things over and over again. And in their despair, just wondering, what hope is there? Their heart is condemning them. There are some people who are predisposed to this. I'm one. But if you're like me and you struggle with this at all, John is saying that there is something that we need to understand. If you are somebody who struggles with spiritual depression, you just feel your heart condemns you. John says, whenever your heart is condemning you, God is greater than your heart. He knows all things. Now, leaving it there just sounds nice. I know God's greater than my heart. What difference does that make? And what is it that God knows that I need to know that the fact that God is greater than my heart and that God knows stuff should make me feel better about my inadequacies, my struggles, my sin, my doubts, my feelings of condemnation? I mean, what what is it that God knows that I need to know? Well, certainly I can't know all that God knows. The Scripture is full of things that God knows that you and I need to be thinking about. I think first from the psalmist, from Psalm 103, when he says, as a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. For he knows how we are formed. He remembers that we are dust. A little boy came home after Sunday school and he was sitting in his room seeming a little concerned, and his mother came in and asked him what the problem was, and the little boy said, is it true, Mom, that we come from dust? And his mother, understanding what the, his question just seems a little you know, different, um, 
explain to them, yes, it is true. We came from dust. God created man from the dust. In fact, we're told from the dust we came, and to the dust eventually we'll return. She said, does that help you? And he said, it does. He said, but there's somebody under the bed, and I can't tell whether he's coming or going. God knows our frailties. Paul writes to Timothy in 2 Timothy 2.19, Nevertheless, God's solid foundation stands firm. In other words, what God lays down doesn't shake. And it is sealed with this inscription, The Lord knows those who are his. In other words, that inscription is on something that is a solid foundation. doesn't matter how you feel, that's the reality. I read some time ago, about the penguins. It must have been in a doctor's office with nothing else to read, but it was about penguins and how they were giving birth. And apparently what happens after the mother penguin lays the egg, the mother goes on a Vegas vacation for three months or whatever, goes on an eating binge for three months. And the father stays with the egg, stays, keeps the egg warm almost the entirety of the time until the mother comes back from her vacation. She reclaims her spot on the egg. The father then leaves for a time to, to feed. And the father comes back, but it's after the egg had hatched. Now, penguins don't isolate themselves, and they live in communities, so you have a lot of little penguins that are having recently been hatched. Dad's coming home from wherever they were. And I, amazingly, the way God has programmed them, the way God has designed them, that the father penguins can identify their own, even though they have never seen them outside of an egg. God has already written this inscription, I know who is mine. It doesn't matter how you feel about it. It matters whether you are God's. The psalmist in Psalm 139 says, O Lord, you have searched me and you know me. You know when I sit and when I rise. You perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You are familiar with all my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, you know it completely, O Lord. So the Lord knows us not just our weakness and frailties, but he knows us better than we know ourselves. Through the, uh, through the prophet Jeremiah, the Lord writes this in a very familiar and often abused passage. Jeremiah 29, 11, the Lord says to his people, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you, not to harm you. Plans to give you hope and a future. As I said, this is a passage as often as abused. People claim that as their, their life verse. I can achieve. I can do anything. And then throw in a little Philippians 4.13 in there, and you're invincible. But we need to ask ourselves, what, who are the people that God said this to? And what was their situation? And if you go back and you look at what, who God was writing to, he was writing to a people who God had already just declared, um, I've had enough of your unfaithfulness. You've ignored me for generations. You've taken me granted for generations, and so you're going to be scattered among the nations, and no longer will you be a unique nation. You're going to be scattered. You're going to be living in foreign territory in an uncomfortable situation. And so these are people that, at this point, many of whom then repented of their disobedience and their um, taking God for granted, but nevertheless, the circumstance that they have just learned is going to be theirs is going to be a very uncomfortable situation. And God is saying to those people who have a history of disobedience, who have just received word of their punishment, those are the people he said, look, 
I know you. I have plans for you. And my plans aren't to do you in. My plans are to enable you to prosper, to partake in my redemptive plan. I've got it all under control. There's no word of rejection here, but to people who had not been passionately seeking God, who had reason for discouragement, despair, God is saying, this is the nature of the relationship that I have with you. What we need to understand is what John is saying in this passage, which can be confusing in some ways, is John is saying that I can rest in what God knows. I can rest in God. Even when my heart is condemning me. See, I rest in the objective reality of who God is and what God has done and what God has said rather than the feelings that I have, whether there's reason for my feelings or no rational reason for my feelings. We rest in the objective reality of who God is and what God has said and what he has done. And again, this is important to hear because some of you are more predisposed to feelings of condemnation and spiritual depression than others are. Those who don't understand that, they may be because they're, they're wired differently. And some of you, it could be, frankly, because you're insensitive and you have no idea whether you're close to God or not. But assuming that we're in an environment where people are seeking after God, there are always a number of people for various reasons who struggle with that spiritual depression. Sometimes it could be a health issue. Sometimes it's a natural disposition. It's just the way you're wired. You're kind of a melancholy person. Sometimes it's the circumstances around you that you find yourself in. Sometimes it's the, it's, it's the sin that you struggle with and don't seem to be able to shake. There could be any number of reasons for the sense of condemnation that we feel. If you are one of those people, one of the things that I want you to know is you're in good company. It's not that my company is necessarily that great, but throughout history, some of the tremendous people that God has used have struggled like you do and like I do. Jeremiah being a good example. I mean, you can't read his letter without seeing him whining throughout the whole thing and just worrying and frustrated about what's happening. And part of it was not just his own unworthiness, but his people's unworthiness. What's going to happen next? You see Jeremiah continually. John the Baptist was one who would go through serious periods of, of doubt and, and feeling alienated. The Apostle Paul, in his writing, seems to indicate that, and he would constantly remind himself of what God has done. And he would have these confessions, and then he would break forth into great songs of praise. In more recent history, David Brainerd, who was a missionary to the Native Americans in New England during the colonial period, Absolutely tremendous ministry that he had, fruitful, respected, died when he was 28 years old, and yet his legacy spread and has lasted. Martin Luther regularly dealt with his own depression. Charles Spurgeon would lock himself away for periods of time because he was so overcome with his own unworthiness and struggles, at least in his heart, if not in his life. 
So if you struggle this way, apparently it doesn't make you a second-class Christian. It's not to say that it's okay or that it's good. John's addressing this issue. He's addressing you, but he's not putting you down. John is addressing this issue and saying to you and to me, there is reason for hope. And the reason for hope is who God is. What God has said, what God knows, that we can rest in that. Martin Lloyd-Jones was a physician who became a pastor in London a couple generations ago. He was another one who struggled with spiritual depression. As he came to realize his own condition and that which is common to a number of others, one of the things that he wrote at one point is this, that it speaks to all Christians. It speaks to those of you who struggle with spiritual depression and those of you who don't. Because those of you who don't, if you understand the nature of spiritual depression and you understand how you can encourage those who have it rather than just say, yeah, suck it up, you're fine the way you are, that's not helpful. But if you understand how you can help the believer who's struggling to apply the gospel to themselves, you then are demonstrating the love that you're called to, which actually renews your own heart so that you can have confidence before God. But what Lloyd-Jones says to those who are struggling with spiritual depression is this, have you realized that most of the problems that you have in this life, most of your unhappiness in this life is due to the fact that you're listening to yourself instead of talking to yourself? He goes on and says, I suggest that the main trouble is we allow ourselves to talk to us instead of us talking to ourselves, Now, he was not insane, despite what that seems to look, sound like. He has a really good point. Because what he had experienced, and what many of us have experienced, is this little voice that keeps coming back and saying, who do you think you are? Okay, you did some good things, but does that make up for all the other things that you did? Or look how you failed there. Well, you did something, but you were planning to do much more. This little voice that keeps on nagging that is there every morning as you move through your day. People are struggling with depression. That little voice is, is just there. It just, and what he's just saying, that's you. That's you talking to yourself. And the problem is you're, not, you're, you're listening to what that voice is saying. He said that the resolution or the solution to the problem is instead of listening to yourself, you talk to yourself. So in other words, when you hear that voice speaking to yourself, the first thing you tell your voice is shut up. I'm going to talk. And you begin talking by the very facts of what God has revealed in the Scripture. When your voice tells you you're insignificant, that's irrelevant. You are significant because you are a child of God. How do you know you're a child of God? Because you realize that you have no other hope and you believe that Jesus Christ has come and died for people who are sinners. In fact, he came when we were sinners, when we were his enemies. He died for us. So it's not our worthiness that matters. It's the worthiness and the grace of God. And if you're believing that, you are a child of God. John's going at great pains to explain that. You have great significance because of that. In fact, you wouldn't even believe if God has not already loved you to grant you the gift to believe in the first place. And you begin speaking the reality of Christ and what he has done and who it is he came for and what he has promised. And you speak to your voice and continually telling it to be quiet. A lot of the depression begins to fade. It's not that simple, but it's a start. But if you don't start talking to your voice, it will continue to be at work within you and remind you of how insignificant you are, except that you are a child of God, loved by God. And God has declared it that way. John reminds us that this is peace, that 
he who knows you best loves you most. And this is our new confidence. And this is how we assure our hearts. By keeping his law, believing in Jesus, and then loving other people. Whether you're one whose heart condemns you, or whether you're one who has been set free from that kind of spiritual struggle, the answer is the same for us both. By trusting in Christ, by reminding ourselves of the gospel, we're keeping God's law. We're setting ourselves free. Or rather, we're acknowledging that God has set us free. It's not just theology. It's applied to the heart, and it changes everything. And my prayer is we would be a people that would continually speak that to one another, including Lloyd-Jones' statement, reminding one another that we need to sp simply speak to ourselves the truth of the gospel. Night and day, over and over, we're set free. We have peace. If we have peace... We have confidence before God. We have confidence before God. We enjoy approaching God. We enjoy approaching God. We talk with him about a lot of things. When we talk with him about a lot of things, we see things change because there's an effective prayer life. May that be true of you and me, our church, not just for ourselves, but for our community and for the benefit of the nations. Let me pray. Father, we do come with thanksgiving, and I pray that you, out of your grace, would continue to be at work within us, that you would embolden those who have been set free, that in love they may encourage those who still feel a part of bondage, and that you might set free those who continually feel themselves in bondage, even though that you have set them free. Lord, help us to realize that we are your children who are loved more than we understand, that we would rest in you and what you know and what you have declared, for that is a solid foundation that cannot be shaken. We declare this. Help us to believe it. I pray in the name of Jesus.